Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. Romans chapter 5. We've been talking about answering this question, why did Christ come? Today we're looking at uh, just the simple answer that he came because of God's love. I want to share with you out of Romans chapter 5 why and how and what that love looked like. Paul David Tripp wrote an Advent journal, a devotional book. I believe it came out last year or maybe two years ago, but I've been going back through it again um, as I seem to be drawn back to that work of his. And he, uh, he had this thought of the Christmas story. The Christmas story tells us the worst news ever and the best news ever. So we're gonna jump in this morning in Romans chapter five and see why the baby in the manger came to inform us of the worst news ever, which is one side of the story, and why he came also to share with us the best news ever. All because God loved the world in this way. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Fathers, we have heard from your word this morning. We have sung your praises of these songs that remind us of that very special night. We come now to read and to study the word which is perfect, your word that is sure, steadfast, your word that is pure, your word that is right. And Father, as we have read your word, we acknowledge that it is more desirable than gold. It is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And Father, we thank you for the words of hope that we hear as we read. The words that tell us this morning of God's love. So Father, we thank you Thank you for the pleasure that we have of joining with the church this morning to celebrate your Son, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that these truths that we hear this morning will rest in our hearts today, for we will never find rest until we find rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first, we're going to look at the bad news of the story, the bad news of the story. How many of you woke up this morning, sat in your recliner, because you've had time to do that since you came to the second service, and uh, woke up with your cup of coffee or your Dr. Pepper or whatever cures your ails in the morning, and you sat down and said, I sure hope I hear some bad news today. (laughs) Yeah. If I could just hear the... If it, bleed, if it bleeds, it leads section of the newscast this morning, right? Well, I don't think you did that, and if you did, we've got some more issues. Please keep listening. 
But when we think through the birth of Jesus, when we think about what we're celebrating in Advent to the expectation of his coming, and finally next Sunday and, and Christmas Eve night, worshiping and celebrating his arrival, there's always the good news of the story. That's what we always want to focus on. But if you think just for a moment, along with his coming, what Paul David Tripp calls the worst news ever, it's not just bad news, it is really the worst news ever. He says this in, his, in, in this devotional. He says, you need to understand that there are two parts to the Christmas story. You need both parts to make proper sense out of the whole story. So I felt impressed as we think about Romans 5 and God's love to focus on that part of the, the bad news of the story because Paul lays it out for us in Romans chapter 5. He lays out the bad news and the good news so well. When we think about that night that we celebrate it is an awe-inspiring moment. It's why we set aside in the calendar each year a time to, to celebrate and worship the birth of, of Christ and the coming of our Savior and the arrival of Messiah and, and all the things that that meant. It's, an, it's, it's the inspiring part of the Christmas story. And it's expressed, I think, well in John's gospel, although there's no birth narrative like Matthew and Luke have in their gospels. We do have this in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh. That's the birth narrative of John, if you will. It's wrapped up in that one phrase, and the word became flesh. That's the story. That's it. But what a moment. What a moment. What do you think about what happened in that moment when the word became flesh? John went on to say, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. On that night when Christ was born, there is God, fully God, fully human, God putting on flesh, coming to earth to be one of us. I mean, that, I hope that that will inspire a sense of awe and wonder in you to think about why would God do that? It's a mystery that that night held when God became flesh, the word became flesh. When Mary cuddled him that night and wrapped him to keep him warm, that God grew up and felt the growing pains that we felt as children, right? He went through everything we went through. At age 12, he's at the temple speaking with the religious leaders and wowing them with his knowledge of the scriptures and the knowledge that he had of the law. And the miracle of the, that moment is that he cried out and he took his first human breath in the flesh, fully God, fully man. And, and now we see in the story that God exposed himself that all that we will suffer in this world, all of the dysfunctions of a society that has run amok. In Hebrews 4.15, it says about Jesus that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is where the bad news of the story enters, why would God come and dwell amongst his creation? Why would he leave and come? Why would he send his only begotten son to his creation? What would motivate him to do such a thing as the incarnation? Why not just stay up there, right? Why not just rain down some hail and brimstone? Let's go Sodom and Gomorrah on creation. Why not send down some lightning, the earthquakes, the pestilence, wipe us out with some crazy virus and just start all over? Why not? 
will encourage you to open your heart to the bad news of the story because society ran amok long before there were political parties, long before there were elections, long before there were family issues, historical problems, relational schisms, financial hardship, broken marriages, broken families, all of that stuff that plagues our society today. Our biggest problem is not external things. Our biggest problem has always been an internal heart problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The ugly side of the story is that there was simply no other way for God to do what he did than to send his only begotten son. Hebrews, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. The first half of that verse reads, I hope deferred makes the heart sick. A hope deferred makes the heart sick. Friends, if you had all the money in the world, the perfect wife or the perfect husband, the perfect children, the perfect job, the perfect everything, hope deferred makes the heart sick, you would still be in deep trouble because the outward realities that we live in are not the reason for concern. Christ didn't come to change our external realities. He came to change our heart. It is the problem always with the heart because the outward realities or a change in those are not going to change our heart. No matter how hard we try to change our life outside of our heart, it will not happen. Some people believe we only need to tweak a few external areas, some events, some circumstances that would make life better, but it's not. The reality is it may change the quality of life for a moment, but that quality of life will not last forever. You can leave a bad relationship, you can quit a bad job, you can pay your speeding ticket or whatever else you fell into this week, you can move out of a hard neighborhood, but it's not going to change the one thing, the one thing you'll never be able to get away from. You. You will never be able to get away from yourself. I mean, people are changing their names, changing their pronouns, changing their identities. You can try to change your look. You can try to change your, uh, your, your, all, all the things, your language. You can be like a spy movie and have lots of different fake IDs and passports, and now you're from this country, now you're from that country, and go wherever and spend other people's money. But you will never be able to change the way God made you. You will never be able to change that because God has made you the way he made you. And you will never be able to get away from you, ever. Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. This verse out of Proverbs makes total sense, of course, because it's in the Bible, and Proverbs is the book of wisdom, so duh. But it makes total sense when you think about all the places, the people, the circumstances, and the things that we try to place our hope in that really is just a false sense of hope because real hope, biblical hope, is based on the fulfillment of a promise. And the world offers a lot of promises that it cannot fulfill. These places, these people, these things, it cannot deliver. It may partially deliver. But when hope is deferred because it didn't come through, it makes the heart sick. Well, the heart is already sick. That's what Jeremiah was saying. And so the people places things, theories, ideologies, parties that we, go to, uh, we hold on to, thinking that this must be the answer to our problem. But here again, there's the bad news of the story in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We will never be able to reach the glory of God on our own. We will never be able to reach his presence in heaven on our own. You'll never be able to outrun yourself. 
and you're going to have to outrun yourself in order to get there because what Paul says next in Romans chapter 5. Friends, at the end of the day, we could never do what God has done for us because left to our own devices, we can come up with all kinds of things, our best efforts at a religion where we, we keep all of the regulations, make all the sacrifices to appease the gods when they get angry with us. But that is every other world religion other than Christianity. But look at who we are. What does Paul say to, about us in Romans chapter 5? Look at verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the first part of verse 6. He says, for while we were still weak and powerless, so when Christ came, when the word became flesh, we were in a place, all of us, we were in a place where we were weak and powerless. Now, Paul is not talking about physical weakness for all of those that like to go to the gym or for those that say next week will be, uh, or two weeks from now, will be uh, making yourself go to the gym and your New Year's resolution. Good luck with that. Uh, he's not talking about physical weakness, okay? He's, it's, not, it's nothing to do with physical. What he's mentioning here, weak and powerless, is that we are weak and lacking moral courage. We lack the will to follow the will of God. So while we were still weak and powerless, in verse 6, the second half of verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the who? Who are we? Paul says we are the ungodly. We are weak and powerless. We are ungodly. Ungodly people are those who are godless, who fight against the purposes of God. It is God's desire that you get saved. It is God's desire that you would know his grace and his mercy through his son Jesus. But when you push against that and you reject and you refuse, then you remain ungodly. When you don't follow the, the, what he has prescribed for holiness, you remain ungodly, which leads us to verse 8. What does he call us there? Verse 8, he says, while we were still what? Sinners. So we're weak, we're powerless, we're ungodly, we're sinners. A sinner is anyone who has neg neglected or disobeyed a divine command. The simplest one I know of is have we told a lie? Yes. Welcome to the club. Verse 8 is talking about you. Verse 10, the news gets worse. For while we were enemies, enemies of what? Enemies of God. What is an enemy of God? Who is that? It's any person in opposition to God. If you're not in Christ, then you're against him. You're in opposition. You're an enemy of God. That's harsh language. And so here it is in a nice bow. Merry Christmas. And again, another Sunday with a lovely message. It sounds inviting, doesn't it? Welcome to church. You're a weak and powerless, ungodly sinner, you enemy of God. <laughs> weak, powerless, ungodly sinner, enemy of God. That's not a guy you want to take home to meet dad. That's not a young woman you want to take home to meet mom. But that's who we are. How do we overcome that situation? Well, today's Advent theme is love. Perhaps the Beatles were right. Sing it with me. All we need is love, love, love. All we need is love. I'm pretty sure Tanner could get up and play that for me if I needed him to, but we'll spare him the embarrassment. If we just loved one another, right, the way we were supposed to, that would, be, that would certainly be enough for all of us to make it to heaven. Life would just be better. There wouldn't be any wars. There wouldn't be any of this nonsense. 
We just get along because we love one another. But then in my mind, that created another question. If all we needed is love, who would set the standard of love? Who says that kind of love is enough? Would it be the Beatles? Who's the mediator of that love? Who's the arbiter? Who's the rule setter, the standard bearer of love that says, okay, you've loved enough, you have met the standard of love, enter into the joy of your master. There are certainly some so-called churches that preach quite a powerless gospel where the standard to get in is how much you tolerate by, and tolerate there means love, by affirming intolerance of sin. There's got to be some kind of standard when you look into God's word. When you look to God, there's only one kind of love. It's the kind of love where the good news of the story comes in. It's a selfless love where Christ would lay down his life for ours. And so in order to get to the good news of the story, the worst news ever has to come out. Without the bad news, without the worst news ever, why would we need a Savior born to us on this night in the city of David who is Christ the Lord? Well, the good news of the story, and we look again at Romans chapter 5 to see what God has done. This is the good news of the story. We'll give you three statements this morning to help us understand and know God's love in this Advent season, which is the good news of the story. In this part of the story, there is a hope that will not disappoint Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. That points us to Jesus. That points us directly to Jesus because there is a hope that does not disappoint. It is a hope that was planned by the Father and the Father's great love for sinners. Look at verse eight, Romans chapter five. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, why did he have to die for us? Because of who we are without him. We are weak, powerless, ungodly. We are sinners. We are enemies of God. Here are the three truths. The first truth is this, first statement, that the good news was planned by the Father. That's how we know this is good news, okay? This is how we know this is a hope that does not disappoint The good news was planned by the Father. We tend to focus this time of year, and rightly so, on the Christ child, the baby in the manger. God with us, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He is the main attraction. He is the high point of the story. Unto you is born this day a Savior. But who is it that had planned this from eternity? It is God the Father. He is there orchestrating all of the events, the whole of the event, as you see why in verse 8, God showed or shows, displays his love for us. He sent Jesus. He gave Jesus, his only begotten, to show us, display, to manifest, to make it known to us how much he loves the world. As captured in the famous, most well-known verse, John three sixteen, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God the Father is not sitting up there on his throne flying by the seat of his pants, planning as things come up. He has planned from eternity this moment that his son would come. 
It was planned by the Father. Here's how we know, because the Son testified to it. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus talking about dying on the cross and laying down his life, he says, no one takes it from me. That's his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Here it is. This charge I have received from my Father. The good news was planned by the Father. The good news is that Jesus willingly laid down his life. Why? Because the Father sent him for that very reason. That's why Romans 5 is is quite special this time of year. Look at verse 7. Paul goes into this argument. He says, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. I mean, who would really do that? Who would do that? There might be somebody out there who would be willing to die in the place of another person, uh, a, a righteous person or a good person, but really, who would do that? Think about how many people are in your life that you would take, a, you would take your life, or let your life be taken in order to save their life. It's going to take a very loving person to die in order to save someone else. But Jesus is that person. He is that God. He is the one who knew the Father sent him. He heard the command. He followed through it. And that's why we come into verse 8 where the Father from eternity has exercised his love toward sinners. He has decreed that he would save those who rebelled against him. That's how great the Father's love is for sinners. The earliest record of that decree would be Genesis 3.15. But time and time again, generation after generation, that vow, that promise, that commitment to sending of the Messiah is renewed. That ought to change the outlook of, our, of the Father. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, the church, those who are saved, that we should be called the sons and daughters, the children of God. We do not deserve that love. Now, let's get not a big head about ourselves when, it, when we start thinking about we're, this love that he has lavished upon us, for we're not something special. If we're something special, it diminishes the special nature of God's love. God's going to get the glory. God's going to receive all of the honor. And, and, and so if we start thinking that we're something special, wow, we must be something really special in order for him to come. No, no, no. We are weak. We are powerless. We are sinners, ungodly We are enemies of God. And that old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, listen to the third verse. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You see, so many people think in order for God to love me, I have to clean myself up. I have to get better on the outside. I have to get better in all the things in order for him to receive me. But what that old hymn reminds us of in the truth of Scripture is you'll never come at all if that's the case. For you will never be clean enough. Do the best you can, some say. Perhaps you'll put yourself in a position where God will take you. No, but from eternity, God has planned in his love, a love that is just different than the way we think. It is a love not based on our deserving it. He didn't love because we deserve it. His love was not prompted by anything we bring or any merit of our own. He loves because it is who he is. Right? That's who he said. I am who I am. He is who he is. I could spend so much more time on his love, but his love sent and gave his only begotten son. And it is that only begotten son who then purchased that good news. 
Friends, the good news was purchased by the Son. You see it here again in Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, while we are powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, there's two of our conditions that are the worst news ever overcome by the best news ever. For while we were still weak and ungodly, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, we hear it again. God shows his love for us and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ what? Come on. He died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've been justified how? By his blood. He purchased that. Verse 10 also tells us, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The good news has been purchased by the son, planned by the father, purchased by the son. The atonement, which is the payment taking our place, purchased by the son of God, by the Christ child in the manger when he grew up, the man on the cross. And because of the great love of God, he knew that we would not be able to have a right standing before him on our own. And so God's planned solution was to send his only begotten. This love of the Father expressed in the person of Jesus so that on the cross, Jesus willingly, with great purpose, took the punishment that every single one of us this morning deserves. That he willingly laid down his life. Listen, the Father didn't put upon Jesus something that the Son was unwilling to do. He said he willingly lays it down and he has the power to take it up again. Christ died in the sinner's place. That's the good news. And that death in the sinner's place in the resurrection is the ultimate expression of the love of God the Father. Securing for us sinners, for us who are weak and powerless, us who are ungodly, us who are enemies of God, securing for those who will trust in Christ Jesus the following. Look what changes. Look what changes. In verse 6, we are weak and powerless. Verse 6, we are ungodly. Verse 8, we're sinners. Verse 10, we're enemies of God. That's who we were. Who are we now in Christ? Verse 9, we are justified. To be justified means, which Christ paid for, means that we are declared vindicated as having com complied with the requirements of God's law means that he declares us righteous. The power of what Christ has done and the magnitude of what Christ has done for us, y'all. I know full well that this man who stands before you is all the things Paul describes. Weak and powerless, ungodly, sinner, enemy of God. That's who I was. I know full well how many times I've not told the truth, how many times I've lusted in the flesh. I know how many times I've not been content with the possessions in my life. I know. I am aware. And there are things that I'm not aware of that I pray God will show me so I can repent and turn away from those too. But, I, but that God, through Christ, would declare me righteous, it is not my righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is all of his sinless perfection that now 
Because what Christ has done, he has made us, he has justified us. As if I had complied with all of the laws of God. Verse 9, he then says, you are also saved. Since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Well, that's an interesting word, saved. Can you answer that question? What are you saved from? I bet you a lot of folks might say, well, I won't be in hell. That's true. Is that all that God has saved you from? That's not what Paul said, is it? He says there we have been saved by him from what? The wrath of God. You understand that when Christ was on the cross, what he saved you from was poured out on him at the cross? That's the glory of the cross. That's what he's pointing us to here, beloved. We are saved, not just to get out of hell, but we're saved from the wrath of God. A million, bazillion times greater than Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood. So much more. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are to be rescued from sin and the judgment that is going to come on that sin. Then he says in verse 10, we're reconciled, which means to be restored to friendly relations with another after a wrong. Well, we were enemies of God, but now that broken relationship has been restored by the power of Christ and the love of the Father. Verse 10 there again, he says we are saved. He says it twice in this passage. Verse 11, we'll see there that we are rejoicing, that we are boasting, but not about our goodness. We are boasting only of Christ. Friends, this is a complete 180 degree difference that he makes and gives us a new heart, what Ezekiel was talking about, that new creation in Christ, what Paul was writing about to the Corinthians. And then the last statement this morning that we find here in Romans chapter 5 is that this good news is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. The good news is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We have to back to verse 5. But look back at verse 5. He's not just a quiet bystander. He is actually quite active in this. Look at verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He is quite active. In Hebrews chapter 9, he write, the writer of Hebrews uh, says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Man, he is the one. It's a heart problem, right? It's not the external things. It's the heart problem. The Father planned it in his love to show and shower that love upon those who are sinners. The Son executed it to perfection. He willingly laid down his life for us. He's the one who purchased it. And the Spirit is the one who comes in and does the work. It is the Spirit, the eternal Spirit offered uh, while Christ was there, without, uh, offering himself without blemish to God. He comes in, he purifies our conscience from dead works and serves the living God. Now, Hebrews, there's, he, he talks about the blood of goats and bulls, and all of those things would provide some kind of external purification back in the Old Testament. But friends, it was completely inadequate to reach our heart. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He comes in, and he, he applies all that Christ has done to our hearts, and he creates that new heart and that new spirit and that new life within us. The Holy Spirit was there with Jesus. He was there aiding and empowering Christ as he fulfilled the mission of God the Father sent him to accomplish. 
and securing redemption for us, for those who will call on the name. And now the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of his work, the Holy Spirit at work pouring into our hearts the very love of God that we could never know or experience without Christ Jesus, without the Father planning it, and without Christ Jesus purchasing it, and without the Spirit applying it. He applies it. He keeps it secure. He reminds us so that we continually rejoice in this great love the Father has lavished upon us. He, the Holy Spirit, gives witness to our heart that God does indeed love us. The last verse of Come Ye Sinners says, Lo, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. I pray that you would come this morning into the arms of Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done all they can and will continue to make it happen to show you this great love that the Father has given. And it is time for you this morning to come to the arms of Jesus and to trust him as Savior and Lord. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.